Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Martellaro. And this week, my guest is Dr. Brad Marston, theoretical physicist of Brown University. Dr. Marston, welcome to the show. Hi, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, can I call you Brad? Certainly. Okay, so for the listeners, Dr. Brad Marston is a professor of physics at Brown University and associate director of the Brown Theoretical Physics Center. A graduate of Caltech, he received his PhD from Princeton University in 1989 and did postdoctoral work at Cornell University. Brad is an Alfred P. Sloan Fellow and recipient of the National Young Investigator Award. And, cool folks, he's a Mac Apple developer. So we're going to talk about that in the second half of the show. So as I do with all my theoretical physicists, I start off with asking about what inspired you to go into physics. How did that happen? Uh, well, I've always been interested in science, and um, I really liked all sorts of different types of uh, physical sciences, geology, astronomy, growing up, rockets, making rockets, electronics. And um, uh, so a, a turning point came when my a friend of my father's gave me a copy of Feynman's The Character of Physical Law. Oh, and nice. that, was, that was such a wonderful book. It really was an eye-opener. Uh, for me, and I decided at that point I have to go to Caltech as an undergraduate. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because Feynman was my sort of model physicist. He was my favorite. Did you meet him? Yeah. Yes, uh, I took his uh, course called Physics X. It was a informal course. Oh yeah, that's famous. It's legendary. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, the the rules were uh, you could you could go and ask him any question that you had in mind. And as long as you weren't uh, you know, trying to show off asking him you know, about the Dirac equation when you couldn't possibly have encountered the Dirac equation yet, then he would uh, you know, expound. And it was, it was quite a performance. A lot of that stuff uh, made it into uh, his book, uh, Surely You Must Be Joking, and also uh, his book, well, we ran out of questions after a while. Uh, so then he started talking about uh, his uh, trying to explain the theory of quantum electronics, QED, and uh, with really very basic mathematics. And that made it into his book on QED uh, for the informed public. So it was wonderful. Wasn't the Physics X class also the basis of his um, Red Book series? Uh, that was the physics one and two courses at Caltech. Okay. Uh, so then the Feynman lectures on physics. So that was those were much more formal. Those had already happened by the time I was there. So um, although we were still using those books at that point, and in fact I still use them today. So. Um, uh, David Goodstein was teaching uh, introductory physics at that point, and it sort of moved on. Uh, you know, in those books, Feynman says he, th he th thought that the course was a failure, and it, it was just uh, too, too difficult, I think, too sophisticated for people. Uh, so uh, they had to fall back on more conventional uh, routes to teaching introductory physics. Did you have any other physics heroes besides Richard Feynman? Um, well, I guess uh, Kip Thorne there also. Uh, oh, you're I, pressing I, all my buttons. <laughs> yeah, he was, yeah I, 
So for my senior year, I took general relativity from him. I, I you know, I didn't fully understand the course, but it, it was wonderful to uh, to uh, listen to him. And that we used that uh, big telephone book, the the gravitation. black gravitation. Yeah. So um, you know, I felt like I had to do that while I was there. So uh, that was wonderful. Yeah, I have a copy of that, too. I didn't understand half of that book, but it was every physics student I knew had it on their desktop. It was sort of obligatory. Yeah. Yeah. You just sat there and <laughs> just kind of cried out to everybody who came by your desk and looked at your bookshelf and said, oh, yeah, gravitation. <laughs> yeah. And all those wild ideas in there, probably most of those are from Wheeler. <laughs> oh, yeah, Wheeler, the father of the black hole, was he not? Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, Go ahead. Wheeler was Feynman's uh, super, PhD supervisor. Wasn't he Kip Thorne's advisor as well? I can't remember. He may have been, yeah. I finally, I had a chance to meet Wheeler at Princeton um, and uh, was able to ask him a question that had been bugging me. And he got it, you know, he had a perfect answer to it. So, uh, yeah, I feel like I felt like I completed a circle by talking to them. So you got your BS degree from Caltech in physics. Uh, what took you to Princeton? Well, um, I was interested in theoretical physics at that point, and Princeton seemed like one of the best places to do that. At that point, I, I was thinking about high energy uh, theoretical physics. And uh, so this was in 1984, I went to Princeton, and the, uh, the superstring revolution occurred shortly thereafter, uh, where there was this breakthrough in string theory um, that included, brought in supersymmetry into string theory. And the graduate students who were just a year ahead of me were starting to do their, their PhD research in that area. And there was a lot of moaning and groaning and gnashing of teeth as they were calculating these horrible string amplitude diagrams. And um, at that point, I decided, I don't want to do this. <laughs> yeah. Good choice, probably. Yeah, I, I changed directions then, and I uh, uh, ended up working with a brilliant physicist named Ian Affleck, who also had been a uh, high-energy physicist, but had moved into condensed matter physics, and took a, a class from him on uh, renormalization group, and, which really was another sort of turning point in my um, uh evolution as a physicist. And uh, at, at that point, I just sort of plunged into condensed matter physics, and then high-temperature superconductors were discovered. Uh, so it was an you know, incredibly exciting time. I went to the big March APS meeting in New York City, the so-called Woodstock meeting, where uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, announcement of the new high-TC superconductor that conducted superconducted at uh, liquid nitrogen temperatures was made. Um, so it was really uh, exciting and kind of crazy time. Yeah. So what was your PhD topic? Uh, it was uh, focused on models of high-temperature superconductors. Uh, it was building on the work of um, Phil Anderson, who just recently passed away. Um, that uh, he had, Anderson had 
this idea that strong electron interactions, uh, it was the interactions between electrons that uh, were responsible for the superconductivity um, as opposed to conventional, more conventional superconductors where it's the vibrations of the, the lattice of atoms that is responsible for the attractive interaction between electrons, making them pair up into Cooper pairs. Um, so it was an exploration, early exploration of, of those uh, ideas, which we still, it's still unsettled, uh, the, the theory of, um, of high temperature superconductivity. You mentioned uh, it was the computational model. Is this about the time, I'm guessing, when you got into computational physics and started learning programming? Just guessing. Well, it was uh, earlier in my senior thesis work at Caltech, I uh, uh, did some modeling of nuclear collisions with Steve Koonin, and uh, that's what brought me to Oak Ridge National Lab in the summer of 84 to use one of their uh, supercomputers at that time. Um, and so I sort of picked up skills at that point uh, that have, I've been using ever since. So um, uh, programming in C instead of Fortran, which was the more common language at that point, um, that's something that I've, uh, I've carried with me since then. What was the attraction to C? Because Fortran is a pretty high-level language that's uniquely designed for scientific calculations, whereas C can bite you if you're not careful. It's a little lower level. That's true, yeah. Uh, I think, so I'd been, when I was in college, I spent my summers at Hewlett-Packard Labs uh, with a speech recognition group, and uh, there were some really good Unix programmers there, and that's, they were, of course, using C, and that's, and that's where I picked it up at first. And then looking at Fortran code at that point, it just seemed uh, primitive, really, uh, in the control that you could have with C. Uh, I didn't want to give that up, and um, so that that's basically why I stuck with it. Did you ever get tempted to transition from C to Python like a lot of people have? Yeah, I've, so when we teach a course, when I teach a course here at Brown on computational physics, I use Python, and um, of course, you know, it has a lot of advantages. It's much easier for students to get up to speed, and uh, it's a higher, much higher level language, wonderful libraries for doing yeah. computational science, yeah. Uh, but it's, um, I think they lose something because they, there's still that kind of bit level uh, control that, uh, you know, uh, you don't have, or maybe you have, but it's much harder to access uh, than you would have with C. Yeah, I get some programmers into trouble who can't pay attention to the details of the code more interested perhaps in the high level effects and they just want to get on with the calculations. Right. Yeah. So then later you went to Cornell. Another name has comes to mind when I think of Cornell and that time frame when you were there, you know who I'm thinking of? Uh, Hans Bethe? No, Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. Okay, yes. Yeah. So um, actually, I, I never saw Carl Sagan, even though he was in an adjacent building. Oh, really? <laughs> How'd you do I, that? <laughs> I, I think he was, he was getting ill around then. Oh, um, okay. He died a few years, I think, after I left. So I, I think he was scarce uh, 
I, I'm not I'm not sure I quite remember the timing. I did see Hans Bethe quite a bit uh, because I'd go hiking in the gorges there, and Hans uh, Bethe would be hiking with his, I think, his daughter, and uh, so that was a real pleasure to see him. Wasn't Hans Bethe one of the uh, primary uh, drivers in the Manhattan Project? Yeah, he was one. Of, so I guess he was one of the senior theorists there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, actually, I think served sort of as a mentor for Feynman. But uh, his uh, contributions are really far-reaching, uh, going to the uh, nuclear fusion ideas uh, for powering stars, and uh, exact so in condensed matter physics, an exact solution that was actually uh, important for my thesis uh, to some a model called the Hubbard model. So. Um, amazing the, how productive he was for how many years. Cool. Well, we've come to the end of the first segment of the show about your career. In the second half of the show, I want to ask you some geeky questions about physics, and we'll talk about Max, and we'll talk about Max going to arm. But first, we have to take a commercial break. Folks, I'm chatting with uh, Dr. Brad Marston at Brown University. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers. And pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy, maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash bgm. That's l-i-n-o-d-e dot com forward slash bgm. All new customers receive a $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Professor of Physics, Dr. Brad Marston of Brown University. So we got into the first half of the show a little bit into your interest in computational physics. Tell me about your life and times as a computational physicist. Are you doing a lot of work on your Mac? Or what Mac do you have? And do you use the Mac as a terminal access to a supercomputer? Kind of give Phyllis in on that. Right. Well, um, yeah, I have owned lots of different Macs. Just bought a uh, Mac, one of the big Mac Pros. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've had several Mac Pros, uh, uh, but um, yeah, had to get one of the new ones. Um, so um, most of my work, computational work, has been on single machines, although I sometimes I use uh, a large cluster here at Brown. Uh, since I've been moving into the area of climate physics, where visualization is uh, extremely important, um, that influenced my choice to develop 
uh, on Max. Um, quantum many body physics, it's impossible really to visualize the the wave function. Um, but for climate models, there's so many things that you can see, and, and in fluid dynamics, there's so many things that uh, are worth visualizing. So, the graphical features of uh, of the Mac were very attractive to me, and um, so now by now I've probably published about 15 papers that have come out of this app that I've developed uh, called GCM, which is short for General Circulation Model, uh, which I put on the app store uh it's free uh just for people who want to take a look uh, it could be used for some educational purposes um uh, but i mainly use that for my research uh investigating some uh, statistical approaches to to climate physics and, and basically trying to meld my interests uh in condensed matter physics with climate physics and see if uh, some progress can be made that way a lot of physicists uh, presented with a Mac uh, decide to get down and dirty with GCC on the command line, but I'm guessing because of your GUI and graphics interest that you use Xcode, am I right? I, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm happy to use uh, the command line too, uh, but the, uh, for the app development, uh, Xcode is really a boon. And, um, you know, for example, this uh, recent transition um, that Apple announced to the uh, ARM64 architecture, the uh, so-called Apple Silicon, I was able to just uh, flip the switch and compile this code for um, the, the new instruction set without any problems. So, um, so that all But on an there. Intel Mac, not, you haven't actually tested it on a on a uh, Apple developer kit machine, right? That's right, yeah. So if any listeners uh, are out there have one of these uh, developer kits and would like to uh, uh, let me test their uh, software there, just please contact me and I'll send you the, um, the, the compiled version. I think I might know somebody who'd like to work with you on that. I'm going to get you guys connected. So Wonderful. We'll see, we'll see how that goes. Right. So what do you think in general about Apple's movement away from Intel? Uh, in terms of philosophical and in terms of impact on your work? Uh, I, I under, it makes sense to me from a business perspective as far as I can understand. Um, and um, it, I'm, I'm happy that they're doing it. Uh, I was a little bit upset when they moved from PowerPC to Intel. Uh, just, I don't know, aesthetically, it seemed like a kind of a backwards move in terms of this ancient instruction set that has all this cruft on it. Uh, I know it's kind of an irrational feeling, um, but uh, so I'm happy to be back on a um, a risk-based machine. And if uh, the uh, performance is as expected, I don't think there'll be any problem. It'll, I'm curious, very curious to see how they handle the Mac Pro, though, with, uh, with the ARM chips. Yeah, we're wondering about that ourselves here at the Mac Observer. Will that be one of the first or one of the last machines to go ARM? It'll be interesting to see how that works out. Right. My next question was, uh, what's your, do you have a MacBook Pro that you carry around, or do you just work on that big powerhouse Mac Pro? Oh, no. I have, uh, I have a 2014 um, uh, Retina MacBook Pro, which I'm um, going to replace pretty soon. But it's, uh, you know, it's been an extremely reliable machine, so I'm, I'm very happy with it. I'm, I'm probably going to wait and get one of these new 
ARM machines, assuming it's a um, some sort of MacBook uh, at the start of the year, new year. And um, then I have, you know, my group has a Mac. We have Mac Minis. We have iMacs. So here's basically a little cross-sectional history of uh, Apple machines. What is it about the Macs that appeals to you and your group? Well, um, the fact that they were Unix uh, was immediately appealing initially. Um, So I've been using Sun workstations um, back in the 1990s, and uh, but they were you know aging, and they were it was really clunky to update them. And uh, and then I had to have a Windows machine to do my office work. So when OS 10 came along, I just um, said. You know that that's the way I want to go, and um, haven't really looked back. Tell me about the model that you're working on, the GCN. Fill me in on that. I'm curious about it. Is it is it classified technically as one of the modern climate models, or does it do something very specific? How does it compare no, to other climate models? It's a very reduced model, so it's not trying to be. Um, a you know a complete climate model that would have to run on you know the world's largest supercomputers those types of models. This is trying to uh, focus on in on some certain set of physical processes. So it's a model of planetary atmospheres, or it could be oceans if you have a planet covered completely with ocean an ocean. Uh, there's no mountains in this model. Um, there's the possibility of heating it from, from starlight, sunlight. Um, and uh, so it's a set of, of um, kind of uh, reduced models where the, a lot of the complexity has been removed, but still there's enough complex, complexities that rich and surprising things happen. And uh, since it can run on um, a single laptop, you can quickly do uh, numerical experiments. Um, and the two uh, kind of areas that I've been investigating have been trying to apply ideas from statistical physics to climate. We would like to climate is uh, is the is a is the statistics of weather. So the idea is well maybe we could use all the theoretical physics of that has been developed for statistical physics and use that to directly access the climate instead of running a weather model, which is essentially what's done now, running a weather model for 100 model years and then accumulating statistics. So the GCM allows you to try out some approaches along those lines. Um, so that's one of the two, two projects that uh, it's, I've been focused on with that. What is the model written in? Is it written in C, of course? Yeah, it's written in uh, uh, Objective C++ and C++. Uh, so I tend to use C++ for small classes and Objective C++ for the larger classes. And then, of course, it uses Coco for the interface. The fact that it uses C++ makes it harder for me to migrate it to Swift. Uh, so I have some Swift in it. Uh, but uh, there's not really yet a nice way to interface between C++ and Swift. I mean, it can be done, but it's it's awkward. So I would, you know, if I rewrote it from scratch, I'd do it in Swift. But um, uh, it looks like Apple will probably support the C family of languages for a while longer. When I think of computational models, I think of linear programming. How does uh, 
uh, object-oriented um, language assist you with climate? Uh, can you clarify that to me? Sure. Yeah. So there's lots of different models and lots of different methods for solving these models. So uh, I can use objects to uh, represent these different options. So when you're selecting a model, for example, maybe the atmosphere is modeled as just consisting of a single layer, then that would be one uh, class. And maybe it's uh, represented by two layers. Well, you could have uh, a couple objects from that first class combined together to make a two-layer model. Um, so the, the natural uh, cl uh, class hierarchy allows you to kind of organize the models in order of increasing complexity and build uh, up from smaller pieces. So I find that a very natural way to uh, develop these models. I've got a weird question for you. I'm going to show my complete ignorance and, and throw something at you and see what happens. So okay. quantum mechanics, one of your specialties, is related to the ac activity of, of, of s small objects, particles, elementary particles, and dictates the, the physics of microscopic phenomena. Weather, however, is a very global in macroscopic phenomena. Has anybody ever suspected that there's any link between quantum phenomena and the activity of the atmosphere? Yeah, and, uh, indeed, uh, there are actually many, many linkages. Uh, so first of all, uh, just the um, most basic uh, understanding of the temperature of the Earth or any planet relies on black body radiation, the radiation that a heated uh, object emits. And that goes right back to the historical origins of quantum mechanics. Planck, trying to explain that, uh, he had to introduce uh, Planck's constant, which is basically the way that quantum mechanics enters into physics, in order to even get the off the first off to first base to describe uh, the uh, emission and absorption of radiation. So we need that quantum mechanics right at the get-go and in understanding um, uh, planetary climates. And of course, uh, photons are emitted and absorbed by greenhouse active gases like water vapor and carbon dioxide. That's another place where it enters in. It enters in through uh, trying to reconstruct the temperature of the Earth from ice cores. Because the the uh, ice cores drilled in Antarctica, the isotope ratio of oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 depends on the temperature uh, through uh, something called quantum zero-point motion. Um, but I've been interested recently in the fact that there are some mathematical uh, similarities between quantum theory and climate physics. There's lots of waves, for instance, in the in the Earth's atmosphere and ocean, and those waves uh, obey equations that are very much similar to the Schrodinger equation mathematically. So there's similarity in the mathematical architecture, but not necessarily quantum effects percolating up to the macro level? That's right, yeah. So recently, we made a discovery that um, the Earth supports the, a type of wave, types of waves, 
that have a topological origin. Uh, and this, these waves, this, this topological physics is the same physics or is the physics that was discovered first in a quantum context and has uh, received several Nobel Prizes for the discovery, um, including my colleague uh, Mike Kostlitz here at Brown. Uh, but it turns out that the same, these same type of topological waves occur in the, the um, Earth's uh, atmosphere and ocean around the equator. And um, so that was, we were really uh, stunned by uh, this, discovering this. Interesting. So that's one of your interests that I have noted here. Um, understand the dynamics of non-equilibrium statistical physics of atmosphere, oceans, to learn about climate and climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, how do you feel about, and how much work do you do with outreach on climate change, or is it mostly theoretical work? Are you an uh, active spokesman for the effects of climate change? I, I don't do a lot, but I do do some public speaking about, about it. I, I, I'm very concerned about climate change. And I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about climate change. Uh, so, for instance, people often uh, dismiss predictions of climate change. They just say, well, it's the result of some complicated climate model and uh, that we can't trust. And I like to make the point that actually it's really basic physics that uh, we've understood for nearly 100 years that's behind all this. And that... If, the, if we couldn't understand it through this basic physics, if it was just a consequence, if it was just a prediction of these complicated models and we didn't have this more basic understanding, then yes, we would be skeptical. But actually, we do have this a very uh, 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 fundamental understanding of what's going on to the Earth's temperature as we're adding more carbon dioxide. All right. Well, we're about running out of time here. I only have a few minutes left. Uh, I wanted to ask you about um, a couple of notable hobbies that you talked to me about on, on Twitter. Um, you said you were into meditation. Yeah. That's a new one on me for a physicist. And also long-distance hiking, which uh, you may have inherited from Hans Bethe, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, so uh, I've been hiking, section hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, and I've done about half of it. And, um, in fact, um, this idea about, uh, relating the waves in the atmosphere and the ocean to topology came to me while I was walk hiking on a particularly dry segment of the Pacific Trust Trail. I had made a mistake and not paid attention to the topo maps. Uh, and so I was hiking along this, uh, ridge, uh, near Lake Tahoe. And if you're on a ridge, there's usually not any water because it just runs off to the side. So I was getting dehydrated and, uh, and eventually, uh, I just uh, fell flat on my face. Uh, and, <laughs> but I'd been kind of mulling over this idea and then, and I don't know, somehow it, it, it came to me that this is something that we should really investigate. Um, the fact that uh, there, there's a similarity between the Earth and its rotation and, uh, and the, something called the, the uh, quantum Hall effect, uh, where you have electrons in a magnetic field. Um, this, this kind of insights sometimes come to me when I'm on long hikes. Uh, it doesn't you might think that meditation would be a good source for insights and it, but I haven't found it 
to be that way. I find uh, I've been meditating for about uh, 30 years or so. And it's more just a, a way of uh, uh, staying uh, calm in a very turbulent world, which uh, has been especially trying in the past year or so. Um, I find that these two things are uh, are really a nice uh, complement to doing theoretical and computational physics. I had a nice discussion with one of your colleagues a few weeks ago, Dr. Stefan Alexander. And we talked about the uh, interaction between music and physics. How you don't necessarily have to be a good musician, but sometimes the music of the mind re reflects itself in the mathematical foundation of the mind right yeah how about you and music i'm just curious i enjoy listening to music uh but i i'm not i don't uh uh perform unless you count whistling <laughs> so i'm i'm in awe of stefan and uh, i know that he's a excellent uh, saxophone player yeah. um but uh but i do enjoy listening to it cool well what a story you've had to tell us this is fascinating well, thank you for having me on your show. So tell me how the listeners can contact you if they wish, if they have more questions. Uh, they're uh, welcome to uh, connect with me on Twitter, um, or uh, you can always email me. Um, I, my email at brown is just marston at brown.edu. Um, and uh, if anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to try to answer them. Cool, cool. Well, thank you again for joining me. It's always fun talking to physicists. It's right up my alley, and it's always fun to hear about a physicist who's using Max and doing computational physics on Max. It's fascinating. So, again, congratulations on your work, and thanks for joining me. It's been great. So you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode with theoretical physicists Dr. Brad Marston and John Martellaro. We'll see you again next week.